Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they could not stop. Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, and my friends call me a lot of things, and sometimes they just call me Waldy, which is very nice. And I'm joined, as always, on this reliable podcast by Bendor Bendy Grosvenor, the famous art historian who, as we found out last week, is very tall. Six foot three of lean art historical talent. So if they ever held an Olympics of art history, Bendy would definitely win the high jump. Mm. He'd also win the long jump. As for the pole vault, though, I think I would win that because I'd use Bendy as the pole and leap nimbly off the top. Bendy, three gold medals. That's not bad, is it? Aldi, you've perfectly summed up my role in life, which is to allow you to spring to ever greater heights. But you've shrunk me by an inch. I'm six foot four. And my height of my athletic achievement in my life was to win third prize in the high jump in pre-prep sports day. So that's the best I've ever done. There you go. Do you know, I was useless, obviously, at sport. Um, but I did win. Well, I didn't win, but I, did, I was the top person in the school for shot put. Really? Oh. <laughs> yes, I was good at shot put. So it's like one big ball throwing a smaller ball, really. <laughs> you surprise me. Not, no, I never had the coordination for sport. It's led me straight to art, Bendy. That's what happened, you see. If you, if you can't do sport, you do art, right? I think that's absolutely right. If you haven't got the coordination for sport, you look at nice pictures. At least that's how it worked for me. And, and me. Bendy, as always, we've got chock-a-block in this podcast with all sorts of art-related matters. There's been some extraordinary auctions recently, which we definitely need to talk about. And Bendy, you're off to Rome, I believe, on a walking trip. And I am off to India to find Malcolm Muggridge's lover. Oh, and don't forget all the pictures we talk about, everything in this podcast. It's all illustrated and annotated on the podcast pages at zczfilms.com. First, though, the calendar is knocking. And when the calendar knocks, Waldy and Bendy listen. Dodgy, 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 anniversary. Ah, oh, that's right, art lovers. It's anniversary time. So cast your mind back to the middle of the 15th century, to a small town in Brabant called Sertenhegenbosch. Can you hear a little baby crying? Yes, you can, because this year is the 571st anniversary of the birth of Hieronymus Bosch. 571 years. That's as dodgy as it gets. Bendy, can you hear that little baby crying? I can, and he's crying at your pronunciation of the town of his birth. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit Dutch, actually, so I can, I can perhaps give it a better... Go on, go off you me. go. <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> Basically, if you want to do a Dutch accent, you just go... That what about the S at the beginning? Yeah, it's sort of silent. Uh, but thank okay. God nobody else could pronounce it. That's why they just call him Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> So, Hieronymus Bosch, let's crack on with your bad pronunciation, my accurate one. Uh, what, what do we know about him? Well, Hieronymus Bosch, well, um, what an uh, extraordinary uh, innovator he was in art history. Um, he seems to me to come at a, a peculiar moment, a great confluence in art history, where we get someone who's first of all, has great skill with the brush, 
and then is painting at a time when his fellow um, northern painters have perfected the art of oil paint. So that allows him to use his immense skill to paint in wonderful detail, these mesmerizing colors that resonate and pop off the, the panels that he painted on. And at the same time, the Catholic Church was going through its, uh, what I would call as a, as a sneering Protestant, it's a pre-Reformation worst, it's most excessive ridiculousness. And they were obsessed with the idea of hell. So into this uh, steps Hieronymus Bosch, and he's probably given us, at least in Western art history, perhaps our most vivid imaginations of what hell was. Um, but at this point, well, is that I sort of need your, your great Catholic knowledge to guide us through what on earth Hieronymus Bosch was trying to go over in these extraordinary paintings he made. Well, first of all, when we both get out of there, that's hell, that is, uh, we'll, we'll be able to, to say with some, with some confidence whether he's um, accurate or not in his <laughs> depictions, of course. So I think what's really interesting about Bosch is that he... Do you know what his dates are? His dates are 1450 to 1516, right? Mm -hmm. Now, compare that with the dates of Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci, 1452 to 1519. So, I mean, with, within a couple of years, they're exact contemporaries. So these two guys are around at exactly the same time in the history of art. One in Italy is doing Renaissance art of a particular kind, very stately and intelligent yes but also somehow incredibly lacking in the kind of dramas that you get in Hieronymus Bosch's work whereas Bosch is going as it were completely crazy up in the north doing these wild depictions of hell and, and of humanity going off the cliff and I think it's really fascinating because we we tend to think of the Renaissance as being more Leonardo da Vinci and we forget that it's also got plenty of Hieronymus Bosch in it and that they are as I said exact contemporaries but um for me, he's he's someone in whom the Middle Ages never quite give up, as it were. You know, mm. they cling to him in a really interesting fashion and fill his art with all these things that actually we tend to think weren't true of the Renaissance. Um, you know, scary monsters, vivid depictions of hell, um, a, a distorted reality, uh, incredibly inventive, dreamlike, nightmarish scenes. Now, all this is alien to our ideas of the Renaissance, but it's not alien to our ideas of what's happening in the North at the time. So, um, I mean, I think he's a, a brilliant and, and fascinating presence, of course. And I think above all, I mean, if we, you know, in terms of how important he was, he's had far more influence on art that followed than Leonardo da Vinci ever did. You know, if you think of the whole of surrealism, if you think of some of this auction stuff that we're going to be talking about that's coming up, um, if you think about science fiction films, you know, th there is so much influence of Hieronymus Bosch on the future that uh, we tend to underestimate. So a magnificent and important presence, I would say. Should we dwell, um, should we set the scene with perhaps his most famous picture? Is that the one in the Prado, the Garden of Earthly Delights, which is a triptych? So a large central um, altarpiece with two wings on, um, and in the middle we have um, the Garden of Earthly Delights. But it's uh, Bosch paints in this um, very eccentric manner. I imagine Bosch is a, something like a little bit of a Roald Dahl character. There's a sort of touch of the Willy Wonka about him, highly eccentric. And these compositions, they sort of tumble out in rather um, chaotic manner. And we look at them today in a sort of uh, where's um, Wally type of um Picture. Where's Waldy? Where's Waldy, indeed. Um, and sometimes I expect to find you there, up to no good. Because the scenes he paints are unlike anything else, really, in art history, aren't they? Ben, I'm just going to interrupt you quickly, because I don't think that the Garden of Earthly Delights begins on the inside. I think it begins on the outside. Um, now, I've had the great privilege of looking at a few of Bosch's triptychs. And 
before we get into it, as it were, and find out what's going on in the middle of the Garden of Earthly Delights, it's important to remember that the painted outside is really significant too, because these pictures were meant to be seen in an opening fashion. So it's like, you know, you used to go to the movies and um, the curtain would go up and then the film would start. There'd be this moment of drama. With Bosch's triptychs, the doors would be closed and then at important religious occasions, such as Easter, Christmas or famous saint today's, the doors would be opened to this triptych and you'd see inside, you'd see the middle. So the outside is really important because that's a lot of the time, that's what you see. And there's a great drama involved in the opening of the triptych. So you've got the two wings, like um, you know, like the wings of a cupboard, open out, and then you see what's inside it. And on the outside of the Garden of Earthly Delights is God creating. Well, it's the Earth, but it's it, it's presented as a large crystal ball with this foggy stuff going on in it. So it's a bit like the Salvador Mundi pictures, where where Jesus is holding a crystal ball. This is God's crystal ball, but that crystal ball we know to be, as it were, his idea of Earth. So this is the creation of us, the creation of the world by God is on the outside of the Garden of Earthly Delights, right? And then you open these doors, and inside this moment of wonderful Bosch theatre, you get to see what's going on inside. And inside, that's where the bad news starts, right? <laughs> well, um, inside, yes, it's it's mesmerizing, but also quite terrifying. And I think we should probably focus, because it's, it's um, the most interesting part, on the right-hand panel, which is a depiction of hell. I mean, a lot of nonsense has been spoken about how Bosch came up with or why he painted these uh, extraordinary imaginings of what was going on in hell. So it, it's full of little sort of half beasts, like a, a bird with human legs who's swallowing little people, and he's got a pot on his head, um, and he's he's defecating the people out into a pit. There's a thousand little abs absurd details like that. And some people say he was on drugs and what have you. But in order for us to try and get into Bosch's mindset, we have to imagine that these were visual aids, I think, for, for sermons and for, for proselytizing for the Catholic Church at the time. And we have to also remember the importance of hell in the Catholic faith. And I'm sure you could probably tell this uh, part of the story better than I can. But as I understand it, as I said, as a sort of someone who was brought up as a Protestant, it's difficult for me to imagine it. But hell is important in the, the Western Catholic story, isn't it? Because it's the, it's the stick with which they beat everybody over the head and said, unless you pay attention, and also unless you repent your sins, but, but more specifically at this point in the Catholic Church's history, unless you pay for indulgences, unless you pay me, the Pope, mm. some money, this is where you're going. And that's what Bosch was trying to uh, depict. It's almost a sort of means of social control, isn't it? Rather than just a nice picture to look at. Well, yes. I mean, you started with hell. Um, indeed, it's, it's, it's critical. Obviously, Bosch's idea of hell is what makes, what animates the whole thing. Um, but we've got to go back to the beginning, Bendy. The hell is the punishment, right? But what for? And it's the other two panels that deal with the what for. They need to be understood properly. Um, now, as you said before, there's an awful lot of stuff been written and said about Bosch, a lot of nonsense to try and understand these mysterious panels. Uh, you mentioned drugs. That's right. It's suddenly in the 50s and 60s, the big theory that came up is that Bosch was taking some kind of strange narcotic that they had in Surteg and Bosch uh, in the middle of the 15th century. Of course, complete nonsense. Although some people still believe that, you know, it does look slightly LSD-ish, the, mm. uh, the imagery there. And mm. the other one was that he was a member of some weird religious cult. 
I mean, he did belong to this organization called the Illustrious Brotherhood of the Blessed Lady, which is this group, it's a bit like the Freemasons or something, that ran the town in many ways. All the illustrious citizens belonged to this, and Bosch became one of them. And although it was a religious group and had its own chapel in the cathedral, I mean, it was basically a town hall organization that ran and organized things. It was a great mercantile thing for him to do to get onto this committee. So when you get to the other scenes in the Garden of Earthly Delights, see, the first one is the creation of Adam and Eve, right? So the one on the far left, you've got Adam and Eve in paradise being created by a very young-looking God, a sort of God who's about the age of Jesus. It's, he looks about 30 or something, rather unusual representation of God. And behind you've got all this stuff going on, the animals, you know, paradise as a, as a perfect place where we were created to have fun. But the middle scene, the one that everybody goes on about, you see, that's the one that's been most misinterpreted, I think, uh, because it's got so many nude figures running around and in many instances seemingly having an awful lot of fun. I mean, it looks like a view of Glastonbury or something, doesn't it, <laughs> on a particularly successful and hot summer's day. Literally thousands of figures and animals and things all, all running around having fun. But I think it's now pretty clear that that is a representation of what's gone wrong with the world. And the key to it all is the fruit, you see. Yeah. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was tempted by Eve with the fruit from the tree of knowledge. He wasn't yeah. supposed to eat it, but she tempted him and he ate it, right? Yeah. And in the middle of the Garden of Earthly Delights, there's gigantic fruit everywhere. There's these enormous strawberries coming out of the water. There's people plucking stuff off the trees and I think it's unquestionably meant to be a representation of everybody doing the things they're not supposed to do and the yeah. world going to hell, really. Yeah. And then, so, therefore, in the final scene, the third part of the triptych, you know, you, you get the payoff. They yeah. get sent to hell for all that. So it's, it's a very, very Catholic work of art. I agree with you there. Much misinterpreted, but incredibly um, exciting to, to look at and full of so much stuff. I don't know if you've um, ever managed to film it at the Prado. I mean, I have, and it, it's so exciting once you get in all there and see all the details, isn't it? Yes, and that, as I said at the beginning, I think for that we can thank not only his technical skill, but also the fantastic innovation of oil paint at the time. And the fact that it's painted on panel within a closed uh, door triptych, which meant that it has lasted fantastically well. So it's in pretty good state. But I think the other thing we have to understand in, in how Bosch's imagination seems to our modern eyes to be so extraordinary and almost uh, eccentric and, and otherworldly is that Bosch, in being asked by the church uh, to imagine hell, to represent hell, which, of course, you have to imagine, the world that Bosch was painting in was, was pretty grim already, wasn't it? You know, a life expectancy of, what, 30 or 40. You could be tortured very easily. Uh, there was war everywhere. There was famine and pestilence. So life on Earth was already pretty hellish. And I think it was that St. Augustine said that hell is a place of suffering beyond your imagination. Well, Bosch really had to come up with that imagination, and that's what he was so good at. He really was, yes. Um, the great triptych in, in the Prado, the Garden of Earthly Delights, is the best known of Bosch's triptychs, right? I have had the privilege of seeing another one, which many people don't know about and should do. And it's in Austria. It's in mm. Vienna, in the Academy in Vienna. And it's the Last Judgment triptych. So, I mean, this is... This is three scenes of hell, basically. You know, it is absolutely full on. This is what's going to happen to you if you stray out of line and if you're a naughty boy or a naughty girl. And it is 
filled up to the gills with these monstrous distortions and, you know, these extraordinary leaps of imagination. Every scene in it, and, and there, by the way, you can do that thing where you, you see the doors being opened. So you see the outside and then the attendant will open it for you and you see the inside. And it's like this sudden great revelation of hell. And imagine this thing on an altarpiece, right? Imagine the priest is going on about, well, you naughty people, you naughty people from Brabant, you're doing this, you're doing that. And if you don't improve, you're gonna go to hell. And then the doors open and they see all this stuff. Imagine so extraordinarily vividly. And it must have been amazingly effective at the time. I mean, really cinematic. Yeah. No wonder he was so successful. You know, there aren't many Bosch paintings, are there? There's, there's what, there's about 25 that are definitely now thought to be by him. But they're scattered about, you know, the King of Spain collected him. There's one in Venice, isn't there? You know, I mean, this stuff caught on. That's the other thing about it. It was really popular at the time, and that helped to make it so popular now because the, the influences came from many angles. Yeah. I suspect that 25 figure is far too low. His herb has been sort of whittled away over the decades by ever more um, restrictive scholars who've decided to say, no, that's by his workshop. It's getting so low now, the number of paintings attributed firmly to Bosch, that you wonder how he ever became so good if he hardly had any practice. But anyway, that's probably a separate question. I think it, probably a neat way to wrap up Bosch is that uh, when he died in 1516, I don't think it's a coincidence uh, that at about this time, Martin Luther was beginning to get worked up um, and communicate his message that the, the Catholic faith was becoming a little bit wayward, particularly when it came to things like taking money to avoid sending you to hell. So he was of his time, but he's had the most amazing afterlife. I think today we look at it in uh, different eyes than we should do. We, we tend to laugh and marvel at them now when we should probably be completely terrified by them. But that's absolutely right, Bender. I agree with you. We, he has been misinterpreted. So forget the drugs, forget the mystery cults. Just remember, this is where we're heading in a handcart. Hell <laughs> it is. Anyway, Bosch, as you said, is famous for his views of hell. So it's a shame he's not around this week to give us his opinion of events in the art world. Because from many angles, and certainly from my angle, this is a week in which the art world went mad. It's shocking news from the art world. Ah, Bendy, for once I think our jingle really nails it. There really has been shocking stuff going on in the art world this week, and especially in the world of auctions, where common sense has moved out, craziness has moved in. So fill us in on what's been happening. Uh, two things we thought were noteworthy. Uh, the first was a sale at Christie's, in London, uh, a painting by Sir Winston Churchill. It was called The Tower of the Kutubia Mosque, and it was painted in Casablanca in Morocco in 1943. Now, the estimate, uh, we'll go in dollars here because it's, <laughs> it helps make the point we want to make. The high estimate was about $3.5 million. Now, this thing, which incidentally had been consigned by Angelina Jolie, which may or may not be important, this painting soared over the estimate and sold for almost $12 million, which uh, by some distance represents an auction record for Sir Winston Churchill. Ridiculous. Were you bidding? I wasn't bidding and I would not bid. Absolutely ridiculous. No, I, I found this extraordinary, but also rather offensive. We'll go on to what, what Churchill was like as a painter, Bendy. Um, but, but I mean, what a ridiculous amount of money. As you say, nearly $12 million 
for a daub knocked out by Winston Churchill in 1943. And I think that the, the really relevant thing here is the thing you brushed over rather quickly, that it belonged to Angelina Jolie. You see, this is what we're dealing with in the art world, you know, this, 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 this haunting of the art world by celebrity issues. The fact that Brad Pitt gave this picture, apparently, to Angelina Jolie before their divorce, and now she's selling it, that is one of the things that undoubtedly poured petrol on the price here. And that just, I just find that offensive. You know, it means there's a complete collapse of values. It means that this picture hasn't been bought for what it's worth. It's been bought for this imagined other thing that's going on, which has nothing to do with art, everything to do with celebrity and notoriety. And that offends me, Bendy. I mean, I'm not a member of the art world in some ways in the fashion that you are. I've never been an art dealer, but it just annoys me. What do you think of that? Well, I suppose there's two things here. The first is, is that a fair reflection of what this picture is worth? Now, you say that the provenance, the Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie provenance is important here. I'm not sure it is, actually. This is the only painting that Winston Churchill painted during the war, as they say. Uh, so it's fairly unique in that respect. So you've got undoubted Churchill megastar dust these days. I think very largely for good. Uh, he's, he's a colossus in our history, in our national story, especially if you're British. Um, and I think for people wanting a piece of that, that action, a piece of the Churchill uh, legend, you know, he was a painter. He wasn't a particularly good painter, but he was, he was okay in an amateurish way. And I think it's, it's inevitable, actually, that people will want to buy a painting he made during the war. And if it's the only one, I can see actually why this made such an extraordinary price. And the second thing is, I also, perhaps it's the former dealer in me, I also don't understand why it offends you so much, because... It, it is what it is. I mean, I, I can separate out the object from the price. The price doesn't really offend me. But this is one thing I've learned in my uh, travels through the art world is that nothing brings out people's inner communist than a painting. There's nothing inner about my communism when it comes to, <laughs> to this particular picture uh, and to Winston Churchill's legacy as an artist. And you forgot to mention that it used to belong to Franklin D. Roosevelt, that he actually oh. gave it to Roosevelt as well. So, you know, at some point... It got lost in in the antique world, uh, and I believe someone found it by accident in New Orleans, and then uh, eventually it got bought by Brad Pitt. Uh, listen, it's a question of values. It really is a question of values. What is something worth in reality? Now, Winston Churchill was a painter. What's the best you can say about him? That he was okay? I mean, I would say that these are just daubs. I think that's even what he said about them as well. You know, he took it up uh, late in life. It was an amateur hobby. You'd go out and he'd paint a little bit here and there. And now they're fetching these colossal sums of money. I mean, this thing fetched more in the auction than a Van Gogh. There was a fantastic Van Gogh La Musme as well, of a sort of beautiful drawing of a young girl. This fetched more than that. Doesn't that reflect a world in which the values are skewed and which in which we really need to look at ourselves and look ourselves in the eyes and quite properly ask ourselves where we're going. But why don't they just buy an autograph in that case? You know, why do they need to buy a painting for 12 million quid? If all they want is a piece of Winston Churchill, it, it, it makes it all sound a bit like a, like a belated relic cult, you know, where you buy the, the bones of St. Teresa because they're going to help you go to heaven or something. <laughs> it's absolutely disgraceful. But I that's, think. that's what it is, actually. It's, it's effectively an autograph. I mean, what is, why do people buy autographs? It's just a meaningless squiggle of a pen on a piece of paper. But no, it's a tangible connection to someone you admire. Yeah, but they that's, cost that's, 10 quid. You know, this is well, 12 no, they million. Don't actually. No, they don't. I mean, but, some, some of these things go for ridiculous prices. The, the point is, people want to own 
a tangible connection to someone they admire. You can get few admirable people in our recent history than Winston Churchill. So the price is under, that's undeniably what it's worth. If you, if you put something into an auction like that, you know, this is not a newly minted uh, piece of digital art, which we'll come to talk about in a minute. This is a painting which has been around since 1943. You know, it's been sold a number of times and it's, it's a known quantity. It's absolutely unique. And more than one person decided they wanted to buy it and, and it set the auction price. That's what it's worth. You can't argue with that price. You can argue with it. You're very accepting of that. You know, you can still, just because it happened doesn't mean one can't say it was wrong to why, happen. Why, why would it be any less offensive if it's worth $1 million than $12 million? Well, I mean, no, you could it, argue that $1 million that, is too much. I would probably argue that for Winston Churchill, $1 million is too much, but I definitely know for sure that $12 million is too much. <laughs> the estimate, even Christie's know it, their estimate was on was 3.5, you know. The estimates are meaningless. It soared well over that. And just because two idiots are in an auction prepared to bid against each other doesn't make something <laughs> right either. Look, you, you called my inner communist into question here. Quite honestly, if you think about you know, how many people could be fed on that sort of money at some poor place in the world, if, like in the Yemen or something, where people are dying of hunger, it's just, it's obscene. It's an insult to the way that we go about the world, if, if it's just okay to lash out enormous amounts of money like this on, on a giant autograph. You know, surely as an evolving species, we should have thought of better things to do with our money by now than do this to it. What do you think? Um, well, I'm not as much an incommunist as you are. When you put it in such stark terms, of course, you know, why would we not give everything we have to those less fortunate than ourselves? Um, well, give I would, something. I would hate. Well, how do we know that the people who bought it haven't also given something? I mean, we don't know. I would absolutely not myself spend that much money on a painting, but I don't think we can necessarily say there's a right, a morally right value for an artwork and a morally wrong one. Uh, because where do you draw the line? What I do agree with you on, Maldi, is that um, when you put two idiots in a room and talk about art, it's very rarely worth taking anything sensible. <laughs> well, listen to one of them, not the other, yeah. Uh, okay, his value as an artist. I mean, we'll move on very quickly, right? But just look at this picture, right? It's a, it's a bog-standard view across to um, a muddy-looking town uh, with the minaret of the great mosque of Kutubiya rising above it. Okay. As an artwork, I mean, it's apparently painted from the balcony of the Villa Taylor, where he was staying. So he, sat, he went out on his balcony of a morning, rushed off this little view of the townscape beyond with its hot um, yellow walls and then the mountains, Atlas Mountains behind. I mean, it's, it's a deeply, deeply average bit of painting, isn't it, Bendy? Isn't it? In a way, that's beside the point. The point is... It's not it's the beside own... the point. Well, it is because it's the only painting he painted during the war. It's 1943 at the Casablanca. It's not Conference. good. It's not good. Ah, but since when did goodness ever have anything to do with the value of art? Since the beginning of time, goodness should have something to do with the value of art. Otherwise, what's the point of art? It's entirely subjective, and it comes well, you might and as goes. Well be it just dealing, well, we're going to go on to what we're going to be dealing with in a minute. But you might as well just be be, be dealing with bags of coal if, if that's all it's about. Surely there has to be some intrinsic worth to the artwork. And some connection between the price it fetches and, and the quality of the work, surely. I can imagine you, Maldi, standing at the first exhibition of Van Gogh's paintings while he was alive and just saying exactly the same thing about something he painted. But, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and um, so is the auction bid. I don't think I can say any more than that. No. 
Uh, we better move on because otherwise we'll come to blows on this, Bendy. You're very forgiving of the art world's shenanigans and of, and of these obscene prices that things are fetching. But how do you feel about the next thing we're going to move on to, which is this big story that's been buzzing around the art world for all of the last couple of weeks um, about these weird things that are called NFTs. And they're a way of buying and selling digital art. And there's been some auction stories related to them. Can you tell us about that? NFT stands for non-fungible token. Um, it's, it sounds a little bit like a sex toy, doesn't it? But actually, it's related to blockchain. And the idea, I think, is quite clever. Uh, because we live in a digital age now, so much art is digital made. But how do you own a digitally made work of art? Because when you open up a JPEG on your screen, you know, you can copy it endlessly, can't you? So, for example, say you, Waldi, own the Mona Lisa. I don't know what you would be willing to pay for it, but say you forked out £100,000, if that's what you think uh, an artwork should only ever be so worth. A lot less than the Churchill, <laughs> is what you're saying. Now, you own the painting. If I come along and take a photograph of it on my phone, I can reproduce the photograph endlessly, but I don't own the painting. Now, with digital art, you don't have that same clarity of ownership because it's born digital, it exists digitally. Now, a non-fungible token is a way that allows you to claim ownership, a unique ownership of the digitally created work. Now, here's the catch. Owning the artwork digitally through an NFT does not also give you rights of control over the distribution of the image. So you can own something, but you can't stop people reproducing it. So in a way, you're only really buying bragging rights. But because of the way of the world these days, uh, these NFTs are in the news uh, because uh, artworks are selling for millions and millions of dollars. And all you're buying really is just a code. In auction. Yeah. Absolutely. As with the Churchill situation we just discussed, absurd amounts of money. Well, absurd amounts of crypto money at that as well, because they're usually bought and sold in, in Bitcoins, aren't they? Are being swapped about. Now, I've been just flummoxed by all this. I think we can both agree on one thing, Bendy, which is that we're not really the most technologically savvy two art historians in the world. <laughs> so um, this computerized uh, truths that are the NFTs, these computerized truths, I mean, they're very difficult to get across. But yes, essentially, we are talking about an artwork that some geek has created which normally would just be passed around Instagram, passed around the internet, passed around everywhere, and everybody gets to see it, and it's nice, and it's a meme, and, and it gets copied by. But in this instance, allied to the artwork is this system of buying and selling them. So you can auction the artwork in such a way, and this is what I think is the interesting thing, the non-fungible thing, in such a way that only one person can own it. As you say, lots of people can see it, but only one person can actually own it. So this theoretical ownership, which is sometimes represented by an actual item, you can actually get like a gold token that has got a sort of code on it, which proves that you own this digital artwork. This is going crazy. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. I mean, all over these American auction sites, people are spending tens of thousands of pounds buying and selling these digital artworks. And in particular, there's this guy whose name, whose tag is Beeple, and he's the, the king, the giant of these digital nifties, as I believe they're known slang-wise. Um, and he had a, a sale before Christmas that fetched three and a half million dollars. Uh, I think his... six and a half, actually. Six and a half. Was it six and a half? 
Okay, so six and a half, I stand corrected. And he's coming up, uh, a big piece by him is coming up now as well at Christie's, and they are his everyday. So basically this guy makes a new piece every day, every single day for the past 13 or 14 years, he has made an artwork, a digital artwork. And the first 5,000 of these are being presented in one job lot at Christie's in this big sale. And apparently it's going to go for loads and loads of money. That's right, isn't it? Well, the estimate was $100. It start, the bidding started at $100. And uh, when I last looked before we came on to do the recording, it was at $3.5 million. Now, his, his real name is Mike Winkleman. And, you know, actually the things he produces are quite interesting. I don't begrudge him his financial success. The person I really feel sorry for here is the person who's going to be, you know, the last one on the chair when the music stops because the existence the financial worth of these things so often depends on their perceived future value you know this is an escalator that's only going up so everybody can jump in but one day the music will stop and then there'll be tears i'd also like to make a, a, a techie point this is a techie world so i want to rebut it with a techie point you're buying uh, the work of art at christie's this by beeple which is currently on offer you're basically buying a jpeg now there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that in 10, 20, 30, 40 years' time, JPEGs or the technology used to make them will, will be completely redundant. And I think there's a real danger that digital art just is going to all disappear in, in a puff of smoke in some sort of uh, digital Armageddon. And the example I often mention is, I don't know if you remember, but back in the 1980s when the BBC was first getting involved in things computer, uh, they had this big thing called a doomsday file. And I think it was on Blue Peter. And I remember watching it as a kid. And they gathered all this information and they put it on this, this great BBC machine computer and it was going to record everything as a modern doomsday book. Well, now nobody knows how to access the file mm -hmm. because the computer doesn't work and it was saved in some funny format which no modern computer can read. So I suspect there's a very significant cautionary tale here. Uh, Hieronymus Bosch would, would have a lovely representation of it and it would probably involve someone weeping over lost money. Well, let's hope so. It's, it's a crazy thing to be doing. I don't like the prices again. And I don't like the art in this case a lot. I mean, Winston Churchill was just average. But this stuff I genuinely most of the time don't like. Digital art, it's incredibly repetitive. It's sci-fi stuff. It's stuff that I think if you've if you're a gamer, if you play a lot of games, you'll recognize it all. It features a lot of mutants and robots and androids and figures from popular culture. So there's a lot of Pinkachu in it. There's a, a lot of people out of Toy Story. And it's a kind of surrealism involving all these things where monkeys get to be giant sized and Donald Trump gets to be tiny and they live in this awful post-apocalyptic world. And it's all of a kind. And um, the art itself, I find oh, really difficult to stomach. Although one thing is right, and that is that there's a lot of Bosch, Hieronymus Bosch in the, <laughs> in the moods and the, the textures of it. Yeah, but it's so repetitive and ghastly. It, it's so boyish as well. You know, you can just see these poor American geeks. And it's all a completely American thing. It started out as baseball card collecting and is now you know gone into art well these guys living in their sad little bedrooms playing with their computers and, and watching too many star wars movies and then making this stuff and then suddenly finding a way to sell it to other guys just like them and this will go on for a while and then it'll all go pop because if ever i saw a bubble it's the nft bubble 
Well, now, well, the, basically, I'm glad this has happened, this NFT bubble, because welcome to my world. You sound like me uh, looking askance at any art produced after about 1830. So now you know how I feel. Uh, the old stuff is the better stuff, eh? Um, you know, this is just sorry to go on about this, because you know, I hate this so much. I can go on about this forever. <laughs> but um, we talked last week about the influence of screens. You see, this is the other interesting thing. How big is a beeple image? I don't know. Yeah. How many pixels? Well, it depends on the size of your thing, doesn't it? If you're looking at it on a phone, on an iPhone, it's tiny. But if you're looking at it on a kind of 80-inch giant screen, it's big. But there is no proper size to it. And, and uh, you know, there's a whole impact of the fact that it's on a screen that affects the art. So I like quiet art, for example. I like a bit of minimalism. So I like something like um, a Carl Andre sculpture where you walk across the ground and it's kind of empty metal plates or a beautiful white abstract by Robert Ryman, you know, where all you see are these pulsing little white shades. None of that can be digital art. You know, there's a whole territory, a whole world of art that doesn't qualify as this stuff. Unless you mm. do monsters, androids and Pinkachu, you know, you're not going to be getting a look in here. So yeah. it's a very, very limited scope and, well, and doesn't really function as art, I think. Who wants to spend their art life looking at a screen? I'm inclined to agree with you, and not just because I have eyesight. It goes funny when I look at a screen for too long. Producer Taya, incidentally, who always keeps us honest and correct, has just texted to say that it's 21,000 pixels square. But I think you, you touch on something really significant, actually, that we assume the world of screens is going to go on forever. We have our devices in our hand with a screen. I'm looking at you through a laptop with a screen. But who knows, probably in 10 or 20 years' time, we'll all be doing things uh, via holograms or some new technology will come along and people will look back at the idea of a JPEG on a screen and something you could buy. And frankly, they'll just laugh at it in the same You're way right. that we laugh at Betamax videos now. You're right. We won't even need to talk, Bendy. We'll just think the things we're thinking and people <laughs> will, will be able to receive them at their end. And you know, we're doing these t-shirts, the Waldy and Bendy t-shirts. They're coming out next week, I think, these exclusive Waldy and Bendy t-shirts. But we could do Waldy and Bendy holograms, as you say. Yeah. Can we finally make some money out of this podcast? <laughs> That's a very good idea. <laughs> we could sell them at Christie's for $13.5 million. <laughs> now you really hit it. I knew teaming up with you was a good idea. Anyway, while we're plotting that, uh, let's just go away for a minute because uh, there's something good coming up. There's something fun. There's something that we always look forward to in this podcast. And that is a journey away from reality and a journey towards the mythical kingdom of our room where we can stick anything we want, if only they'll let us. On the Wall what a relief, Bendy. We can forget Bosch for a minute, forget digital art, forget NFTs and move on to something that we can have hanging in our room during the lockdown because we're allowed to have anything we want. So um, what are you going to have? Well, this week I've gone not for on the wall, but for on the floor, because I would like a section of the Appian Way, which is a Roman road that leads from Rome down south towards Brindisi in the south of Italy. Now, one of my favourite things is walking along Roman roads. I, I love history and I just, I love the sense of walking down a path which has been trodden so many times by so many other people. And this particular section of Roman road that I want to uh, dig up just briefly and bring back to my house here in Scotland is the part that was first built by Claudius Caicus, Appius Claudius Caicus, who was a Roman official. Uh, and he first began the road in 312 BC and hence it's called the Appian Way. 
it was one of the Roman Empire's, the burgeoning Roman Empire's first sort of military roads because it was built basically to ferry troops to fight uh, a war, the Samnite Wars. But one of the reasons I just love it so much is that the, the engineering skill to make it was so extraordinary that it has lasted for all these thousands of years. And uh, the bit I want is some of the original flagstones made of volcanic stone, these great big black flagstones that are laid down on various layers of, of gravel and cement. They still have the wagon ruts in them. So they're all still in exactly the same place that they have been since 312 BC. And these extraordinary Roman flagstones, which have been carved by time and the cares and, and loads of thousands upon thousands of people and, and animals. Now, I find that actually as, as beautiful as any sculpture. We've been talking about uh, the value of art and where we find beauty in art. And I, I find as much beauty in that, actually. In fact, it's probably a reflection of the of, I've been locked up for so long now. But if you, I would rather now, when we're out of lockdown, spend a day walking down the Appian Way than actually a day wandering through the Louvre. And the reason I particularly want to do that quite soon is because one of my favourite restaurants in the world, and I'd love to take you there one day, Waldi, is called the Ristorante Archaeologia. And it's at the, the section of the top end of the Appian Way, just as you come into Rome. And, and Waldi will sit there and we'll just enjoy being back in the world. Hmm. That sounds delightful, Bendy. I've done bits of the, the, the Appian Way as well. I mean, how long is this stretch that you're going to be taking back to Scotland? Oh, I'll be happy with just a few metres. And I'll sort of look at it and caress it and think think of all the people who've trodden over it. In the uh, yeah. I thought it might be after the whole thing, in which case, if you headed out north from your house, <laughs> you'd end up in the Shetlands or something <laughs> like that. It's a hell of a long road. I know the cart tracks you mean, and they've got them in Pompeii as well. Um, mm. they, are, they are these wonderful things where, where because the people must have chosen the same course yeah. along the same stone route all this time, they've worn these big gashes, these kind of canyons into the rock. And they are beautiful, and they are, they are definitely filled with this sense of time, aren't they? I love the Appian Way as well. Um, I've had the privilege to film there a couple of times, bits and pieces of, of old Roman rock, and really enjoyed it. And I remember the best thing I ever did there um, was to find a Rotas square. I found a Rotas square carved onto one of the sarcophagi um, in the Appian Way. Right. What is a Rotas square? Ah, funny you should ask. <laughs> well, no, Rotas Square is really interesting. They're basically a, a palindrome. Uh, they're a magic square made up of, of letters. And the word Rotas goes across the top, and then it turns into Sator. Uh, and then on the bottom it becomes Rotas again, and then Sator again. A magic square where everything is the same, whichever way you look at it. Mm -hmm. And then down the middle is the word Tenet. So Rotas, the middle letter is T. So you get Tenet, which is also a palindrome. Mm -hmm. And then that goes both ways. And then these two other words, which I can't remember, going down the sides. And I remember the phrase it all makes up. It's got a magic phrase. That, it's a phrase like something like, the farmer Arepo uses a plow or works with a plow or something like that. So all these words, all these letters that add up. And the thing about it is that um, it was used by the Christians in early Roman times it was used by the Christians to signify their Christianity. So if they put a Rotas square um, outside their door, uh, somebody coming along would know, oh, there's a Christian living there. And they found a couple in Pompeii, but I was told there was one on the Appian Way um, somewhere, and I, it took us half a day to find it. It's not a dramatic-looking thing, but it is, it's very emblematic and very powerful, this magic square, as they called them, carved into a sarcophagus on the Appian Way.
That's one of the things that just uh, always blows my mind about uh, when you come across any of these Roman sites. It's just just how much there is to find. It's just lying about. And, I think and that is right. And then you've got all these statues and columns and inscriptions yeah. and bits and pieces and yeah. stuff built into the walls. I mean, it's just a journey of discovery. Good. Oh, by the way, so sorry, sorry to hog your, your Appian way, but you know, did you remember that film that came out last year? Um, it was a Christopher Nolan film called Tenet. Yes, it's quite a big hit. It. Haven't seen it. No, I haven't seen it either, but it, it came out and it was a big hit. It, uh, that was all about Rotas Square. So Tenet is the middle word out of a Rotas Square. And I think the Kenneth Branagh character in the film was called Sator. And it's all about somebody going back in time and then coming back to our present day. So it's a kind of time-based palindrome movie. Um, and that's my incredibly tenuous connection between <laughs> the film and the Appian Way. Okay. Which you haven't seen. No, I, I'm going to go to that restaurant with you, Bendy. Oh, boy, are we going to have some great food there. Oh, beautiful cheeses and wonderful <laughs> mozzarella and a tomato caprese salad. Oh, can't wait. Uh, in the meantime, I suppose I better go on to my pick. So we're going out on Sunday with this, this podcast, Bendy. So tomorrow is Monday. Do you know what day it is? Uh, no. It's International Women's Day, Bendy. Ooh, sorry, should have been. Very important day. So mm. I have decided that we've got to celebrate this with a picture by a woman. So I came across this picture recently on Instagram in, in the um, pages that are run by, do you know Jerry Saltz, the New York art critic? Jerry okay, Saltz. So Jerry, yeah. Yeah, lovely guy. Anyway, he, he put this picture up and I couldn't believe it because it was very dramatic. And it's a big nude, really sultry kind of nude of a, a woman lying on her bed sleeping and i believe it's called sleep and she's a gorgeous brown color and she's got this red cloth hanging next to her and it's quite a alluring picture but also it's very intimate and warm and lovely and that's because it was painted by a woman um, and the woman who painted it was amrita gill and so i found out a little bit more about her and she was absolutely fascinating so they called her the frida carlo of india she was born in India early in the 20th century, went to Paris, which is where she learned how to paint nudes and things, because obviously in India they weren't doing that, was moved in the circles of, of Picasso, Matisse, what have you, came back to India, uh, and then began to paint a much more Indian type of art. And she's become this big star of, of Indian painting, everybody. Her pictures are very expensive at auction. And she had a tragic and fascinating life. And so she died at the age of 28, very, very young, having had these explosive love affairs. Um, so she, she had an affairs with, believe it or not, Malcolm Muggridge. She was Malcolm Muggridge's lover in India for a hot, passionate time, mm -hmm. various Indian politicians. And she married her Hungarian cousin, first cousin. So it's all a very twisty private life, which of course makes it very, very ripe for a biopic, which I'm sure will be on the way pretty soon. But her art is just gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Because although it tackles these themes, which are just like the themes that European art was tackling, it tends to bring this other sensibility to it. It's just a different touch, a different awareness of light, different softness to me it immediately feels different from what we were doing as it were in the west and immediately attracts me to this other color scheme this other way of thinking and above all this other time scale it's as if her work is much more sort of slower than, than our work anyway i loved uh, what i saw by her and this picture of her sister indira lying sleeping on the bed naked it's so beautiful. I mean, most of the naked women in art who are sleeping are being lectured over by men. But it's wonderful to see this 
other kind of artwork, this beautiful appreciation of her sister's beauty by an, an Indian artist. I love it. Yes, I'm very glad you brought this to my attention. Well, it's a beautiful painting. I entirely agree with everything you say about it. And uh, to my shame, this was not an artist I'd heard of before. And there's two things that strike me, actually. First of all, having looked up a bit about her life and subsequent oeuvre when she returns to India, is it so interesting how she consciously decided to uh, turn her back on uh, European style of painting that she'd been taught and frankly, as we can see in this painting, excelled at, and then to consciously try and rediscover uh, what she thought of as a more Indian art. And, I, and this is something I'm really interested in at the moment in my sort of explorations of the, of the broader story of British art is how much the British contribution to art in the places of empire, particularly like India, was actually destructive. We went in and there was this, this beautiful tradition, Mughal tradition of, of miniature painting and so on, which we kind of flattened with our uh, more Western British desire to just paint stiff, boring portraits of people, basically. And she wanted to try and resuscitate that and actually played a key role in doing so. So I think she's fascinating from that point of view. But but also, I thought it was interesting, actually, you started off by saying that you came across this picture on Instagram. And I think it's uh, part of the old argument for saying how much the role of uh, a female artist has been lost in art histories because of this concept of the canon, um, the idea that generally male art historians favoured male artists to go in their big books, which helped shape what we call the canon of art history. And of course, one of the things that the internet does is completely obliterate that. It completely democratises. There's no gate, there's no filter on which artists we come across. And um, Amrita's work is an example of that. And so mm. um, isn't it a fascinating voyage of discovery we're all going on? I think that's right. I think there is another force at work here, which is modernism. The modernism as a, as a style, uh, a way of making art, was very, very powerful in the, in the way it demanded a certain canon, in the way it built up its canon. And if you weren't part of that, you got chucked to the side, didn't you? Mm. And there are a whole lot of artists who just didn't fit the Picasso to to Jackson Pollock line, as mm. it were, and who got forgotten. And and actually, that is something that has been happening in the last few years. There's been this rediscovery of a lot of really juicy and wonderful painters who were cast aside because they weren't, strictly speaking, modernist. Mm. And I have found loads of new faces and new talents recently because of that. And that's something that I suppose we should also be grateful for, because we all of us want to think that we see the world correctly when we're, when we're there, don't we? But of course, it isn't until we're gone that, we, that people will really see what's happening. If the same thing's going to happen with this auction thing, people will see that these auction prices are obscene, they'll agree with me. But at the moment, there is plenty of people who think it's just okay to spend silly money on anything you want, because, uh, because it doesn't matter. But yes, she's a wonderful painter. It's exciting that it's International Women's Day tomorrow. Um, and there we are. It's been a good podcast, I would say. Good. Marvellous. Enjoyed it. Well, from me, it's bye-bye. And cheerio from me. Woldy and Bendy.